Thanks for listening to the new Turn of the Tide podcast, where we discuss cutting-edge research on climate change, oceans, and the environment. This show will feature work by early career scientists from grad students to postdocs, new faculty, and non-academics who are making waves with bold research questions, innovative methods, and big solutions. Today on Turn of the Tide, I'll be delving into some cutting-edge research on lung health. According to a 2013 study published by the American Thoracic Society, hundreds of millions of people suffer from respiratory diseases, and 4 million people die prematurely annually from these diseases. Yet the study warns the causes of these diseases can often be mitigated or avoided. Many respiratory diseases can be reduced, at least in part, by reducing exposure to indoor and outdoor air pollution, as well as other pollutants. So this topic has huge implications for public health. To discuss her research in this field, my guest today is Jessica Monterosa, a PhD student in the Environmental Health Sciences Program at UC Irvine School of Medicine, where she researches the impacts of smoke from solid fuels used in developing countries on lung health. She's an avid science communicator and is a member of the Biota Project, a science communication and outreach organization that connects underrepresented communities to science. Thanks for being here, Jessica. Thanks, Elisa. Thanks for having me on Turn of the Tides. I'm really excited to share my work with you. As I said, Jessica works on pollution and lung health, and I'd like to learn a little bit more about the background of your work. So why is this an important topic? Right. Um, so air pollution is one of those hot topics in science that we hear about all the time, but I think it's hard to imagine how we study the air. Um, specifically, I study um, air pollution from biomass or solid fuel sources. So if you imagine going camping or going to uh, make your own barbecue grills, and then you end up smelling like smoke after a whole weekend of camping, well, that's because these air pollution particles stick to your clothes, stick to your skin. And if you imagine it sticks to your clothes, it's also going inside our lungs. So um, in my research, uh, my professor collects the air pollution sources from traditional cook stoves in India. So he has equipment, special equipment to collect these particles into filters which I then use for biological studies to understand how it affects the lung. So you're using these filters that are in people's homes in India, and those, they're already deployed? Um, no. So my advisor actually goes into people's homes in India. He works with a lot of groups and colleges out in um, rural parts of India, and he sets up an equipment. So he goes into people's homes while they're making their traditional dinners, um, you know, they cook rice, they heat up different types of bread, and sets up the equipment so that he collects the pollution onto these bags and filters, which we then take back um, to the U.S. So it's not like we have a um, permanent setup in India, um, but we do want to collect particles from real conditions. We don't want to have these um, artificial conditions in lab um, that is completely different than what people are breathing in every day. So that's why we make the trips out to India. Wow. So then you take these samples back to the lab, or your advisor takes them back to the lab, and then it's your job to do what with them? 
So then after that, we um, will the we collect both air samples and then the particle samples. So we chemically analyze them to see what compounds are in the samples, um, and we can analyze both the gas and the solid parts. And I extract the solid parts and then use them to study what they do inside the body or inside a cell type. So I take them out of the filters. We use a water extraction to take them out, and then I put them inside a cell culture um, experiment. And from there, we can start studying how, um, well, I study the immune system. So we study how your white blood cells actually pick up these particles and what happens to the white blood cells as they pick up the particles. Do they collect everything? Do they act normally? Do they start becoming dysregulated? Um, these are all questions, open questions in the field. And we're still in the initial stages, but our results show that the macrophages do take up the particles um, and what happens is that they try to destroy these particles. Um, they produce reactive oxygen species, which is just a fancy word for saying chemicals that our body produces to try to destroy these particles. But um, these particles are very persistent, both in the air, in real life, and in our cell samples. So these uh, macrophages or the white blood cells keep on producing reactive oxygen species, trying to produce it, and eventually you overcome the good side of trying to destroy these um, particles and end up creating harm to your own cells. So the own white blood cells start becoming stressed and um, unhealthy over over time, and you see this effect really quickly over a span of a few hours, the white blood cells are unhappy, unhealthy, and just very stressed out. Are you seeing the same effects that you're studying in the lab with the cells becoming more active? Are you seeing that this is correlated in any way with clinical effects and the people supplying these samples from the field? Yeah. So my professor, um, Dr. Rufus Edwards um, studies a lot of these respiratory outcomes that you do see in rural communities that use solid fuels and also in um, urban environments. So what you do see um, are that specific populations have are more susceptible. So children, um, you see more children with asthma, wheezing, um, infections, uh, lower respiratory tract infections and just general poor health outcomes. And so a lot of public health studies do show these uh, correlations with different sources of air pollution, um, like traffic um, pollutants. Um, some biomass fuels are, um, you see this as well with biomass fuels, but making that connection at a molecular level of is, is this air pollution source causing this wheezing, and that's what I try to tease out. Or uh, specifically, we do the chemical analysis of our air particles to see what parts of air pollution are the worst, what parts of air pollution are causing these downstream effects. You have effects in um, cardiovascular outcomes as well, and it's just hard to make that connection of how do you breathe something in so that it gets to your bloodstream, and then eventually you have... Um, 
So you see, you see the correlations in people, but trying to bring that a step further is one causing the other is an open question in the field. So if you're looking at all these different components of the pollutants, can you correlate them to different sources of these solid fuels? Like, can you say if you have chemicals A, B, and C, and you have a lot of them from one fuel source, and they are causing bad downstream effects in these cells over here, does the research then have implications that you could advise people to switch to other solid fuels if it was available? Right. So that would be a part of the goals of my research right now. Um, more than 50% of the world relies on solid fuels. And so, yes, we want to move in, move on to better sources of energy, but it's unrealistic to supply 50% of the world with a, an alternative source of um, fuel from one day to another. So in India, we uh, a lot of people don't actually use wood. They use dung from animals, camels, cows, or mixed fuel, so they get a little bit of brushwood and a little bit of dung, and that's what they cook with. And so our lab tries to compare the chemicals that are coming out from just dung sources, and there's wet dung and dry dung, the amount of water in there, and um, mixed fuel sources, and then clean wood sources. And then from there, we have um, categories of the types of wood or the types of brushwood. But we do see that the dung smoke has more um, of the has more harmful effects than just wood sources. And in the dung you have a lot more nitrogen um, compounds or uh, complicated nitrogen compounds. Um, you see a lot of the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which is a fancy word for chains of carbons or um, rings of carbons that come out from gas emissions from everything, but these are the specific compounds that are correlated with the health effects. And then, but there are thousands or even, um, there are thousands of compounds that are emitted by the pollutants. So we try to analyze the compounds that come out of these different sources and then start making those connections. Uh, which one's worse and what do these worse fuels have more of? What compounds do you see more of? And are these compounds necessarily related or causing the respiratory outcomes. So it's a big um, following the chain of cause and effect that we're trying to see um, what's causing the disease outcomes at a molecular level. So you said half of the world's people rely on these solid fuel sources. Correct. Mostly from uh, people in China, India, the, you know, the more populated countries in the world and other rural areas like Mexico and Latin America that do use um, these solid fuel sources. So we're talking about a huge population, half the world's people, in rural areas where resources can be limited. So I guess the question is not whether people can switch to different fuel sources, as I asked a little while ago, but could this work be used to develop filters or something like that, so, something that converts this science into real-life health outcome changes for the people affected. How do you envision that potentially playing out? It's a question we think about every day. How does my work of collecting this particle and then putting it in my you know, lab environment to see what it does in one cell relate to the everyday life of people who, who use biomass fuels? And 
actually we do this research to try to say this type of fuel is better than the other and that hopefully would um, impact policy where people in other where we would advise people in other countries to maybe subsidize one fuel over the other so it's more affordable for people and so that they can switch over to something more easily. Um, or our research also helps develop um, better cook stoves to filter out the air um, through vents. Um, our research can also help um, in in kind of des- designing how to make filters that can maybe filter out these uh, pollutants in the home. A lot of these pollutants stay trapped indoors. Um, it's called indoor air pollutants, household or household air pollutants. And um, like I said, these these pollutants get stay stuck on clothes and cloth and furniture. So uh, our research just tries to influence policy, influence the choices that is made at a higher level, so that hopefully people are more aware of the dangers of cooking with, for example, dung and, you know, your grandma's, um, your grandma's cook stove indoors with dung, like trying to limit that possibility into better or healthier choices. How'd you get interested in this topic? Was there anything in particular that got you interested in the connection between air pollution and public health? Well, I grew up in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, my high school uh, soccer pictures are in the backdrop of the L.A. city skyline. And I remember, you know, <laughs> running around for my soccer practice at 3 p.m. right around the time when traffic's building up, being surrounded by three freeways. And I've always been, you know, in the sciences. I was pre-med in high school type of thing. And I was always aware of air pollution and its health effects. And I always wondered, why don't people do anything about it? We know it's bad. We try to make it better with with the smog checkups in California, but it's not getting any better. And so I slowly started venturing into this field, studying lung health and um, toxicants of lung health. And eventually, over the time, you start realizing that the air pollution sources in the city is only one part of the problem of all the air pollution sources around the world. Um, biomass smoke affects women and children more uh, more so their susceptible populations because women and children spend more time indoors or in traditional places spend time cooking next to a fire, uh, the fire. And so um, I just became interested in trying to help solve this problem and trying to make um, make research to find healthier options for people. Is that overlapping interest you have between improving social health and environmental justice part of what got you into the Biota Project? Um, I guess um, I'm also a first-generation student, and so I understood that my living situation, living in downtown LA wasn't necessarily a choice and a lot of people don't have a choice as to where they live and how close they are to the freeways or the roadways. And then you think about at an international level, a lot of people don't have a choice of what they choose to cook with, whether it's dung or wood. And so not having that choice, you also don't think about your options or the possibilities very hard. You know, uh, you don't think about 
do I want to have more green space? What will having more green space do? These are not questions that I grew up thinking. But if you engage people, people are always interested in learning more. People are always interested in keeping their family healthier. But the the sources of information are often limited, and that's part of the overall I think science efforts recently to try to make information more accessible to people who are not experts in the field. So let's talk a little bit more about how the Biota Project does that. I think this is a really unique and exciting project. Um, Before we started talking, I introduced the Biota Project as an outreach and science communication organization that connects underrepresented communities to science. I know that your group uses art, science, film, and music in these different fields to really pull diverse interests together. But what is the Biota Project in your words? So Biota tries to communicate and highlight science to diverse audiences, and we try to focus on symbiosis in the natural world. Uh, We use art and uh, diverse media to try to share these messages because most people don't sit down to read a book about, you know, symbiosis. And so sharing pictures or audio, these are different sources to reach multiple audiences. Can you contextualize symbiosis for me? What does it mean here? Yeah, um, so we use um, more the traditional definition of symbiosis, which means um, the, like, various organisms living together in a community and how they affect each other or influence each other and to some extent need each other to for uh, to thrive and um, continue life. And we decided to focus on symbiosis because we can't really have life without symbiosis. We don't study um, anything in isolation. And so that's kind of the message we try to share that you the things don't exist in isolation and everything affects one another and there are multiple fields that come together for the understanding of our world. What are the goals of the work that you do and how do you achieve them as a group together? Um yeah, so we founded this nonprofit to um make connections with diverse audiences and communicate the science. I think right now we're still in the uh, initial stages of our project, of our nonprofit, but we start by making connections and collaborations such as this, um, you know, sharing what we do, who we are, and we're trying to get more people to join our team to contribute their work. Um, We have people submitting drawings. We have people... Uh, volunteering to um, showcase our work in conferences or workshops. We're always trying to make connection and gather people and try to make, um, try to get more work and stronger connections to to bring this information to more people. So the Biota Project has recently published a paper in the journal Integrative and Comparative Biology entitled The Biota Project, a case study of a multimedia grassroots approach to science communication for engaging diverse audiences. I encourage everyone that's listening to read this paper, and I'm going to read an excerpt from it, just a sentence. These introductory exposures to a location culturally viewed as undesirable, in quotes, 
have transformed the conversation and sparked new interest and stewardship through the lens of a different and fresh yet locally rooted perspective. So I was interested in this topic of places that are undesirable and transformations of knowledge, which also transform the view of these locations. Can you speak more about examples of this transformation? I mean, I guess what I get from that and from working with others is just, you know, showing up, even here in California, you go hiking and, and a lot of people think it's ugly, that it's dry, that it's burned up, the air pollution, we're not taking care of things. Or in, within the sciences, a lot of, uh, you know, minorities uh, feel like they have to kind of do research that they're not necessarily interested in, that, uh, but it's just ongoing and staying within their advisor's work. And I think that undesirable, for me, it means just breaking the expectations or the boundaries of what we should focus on or who is expected to be doing this work, this science. I think that, and that's what I get from that sentence. Um, and I think a lot of people feel like, um, certain certain areas, certain um, ideas aren't um, important, aren't worth studying, or we'll get to it later. And I think these type of um, thinking processes are very, very um, common. And so I think in Bayota, we try to celebrate diversity, celebrate, um, you know, uh, the chaparral, um Ecosystem, it's like a lot of people don't think it's pretty, but once you start focusing on individual aspects of what makes a chaparral, what are the plants there, what are the animals that live there, and who, who are the people who are affected by the environmental changes in these areas, which are usually, um, you know, locals, um, without any agency, you start focusing on these small aspects of a community and that's um, kind of like symbiosis. You need all these things to work together um, to make something um, plentiful, bountiful, healthy, um, and thrive. Um, and I, I think that's part of the symbiota um, mission, just focusing on these undesirable, maybe ignored, or just sometimes people see it as unexciting um, problems and just focus on them and see what is going on there, who wants to help, and what can we do in these areas. How do you see your research on air pollution and health intersect with the mission and the work of the Biota Project? Air pollution is its easy to overlook because I think a lot of it is in our current society, we say just drive less, bike more, and you know we'll start fixing the air pollution problem slowly. But we don't think about all the sources of air pollution, and we don't think about the air that we currently are breathing isn't the best, and it can only get worse, it's only, and it's only worse in other areas. So I think through um, Biota, where we showcase uh, symbiosis, we can talk about how air pollution or, or these invisible things around us are affecting life everywhere. Um, a lot of it is due to climate change. A lot of it is due to industrialization. And um, it's not like you can just, you know, grab a vacuum and get rid of all the dirty air. All these things have to come together and we have to work together through many different fields to start improving 
our environment. So that's my way of trying to showcase air pollution and trying to make it a less um, intimidating idea for people to think about. And, um, you know, just imagining for people um, barbecuing or going camping and they remember, oh, this, I maybe don't want to stand too close to the fire pit while making marshmallows or I don't want to, you know, make marshmallows for hours because it's not healthy. You start thinking about those things and start making connections and you start making these ideas relevant on an everyday basis. Thank you, Jessica. Both your research and your community work are truly inspirational. If anyone would like to get involved in the Biota Project, how can they find out more? Yeah, um, so we will soon be uh, asking people to submit images. We might want to have, you know, some type of photography contest. We're definitely looking to engage more audiences. And if you Google the Biota Project, that's our handle for Twitter, for Instagram. We have a Facebook Um and then we have a, a newsletter subscription that you can find on our website as well. Jessica, from our entire team, thank you so much for joining me on Turn of the Tide. All right, thanks. If you'd like to find direct links to all of the ways to connect to the Biota Project and to learn more about Jessica's research, you can find those links on our website, turnofthetide.weebly.com. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you join us next time on Turn of the Tide.